This is an ABC podcast. Australia's biggest coal-fired power station in the Hunter region is set to shut down seven years early. Change is happening very quickly, but there's still no plan to support workers and communities. There are communities in Australia that really rely on the fossil fuel industries for their economic welfare, and this is going to change no matter what the government does as our export industries change. Meanwhile, you've got Liberal and Labor saying, look, we can keep digging up and burning and mining coal well into the 2050s and still meet our climate targets, and we clearly can't. Climate change and energy policy are two of the key issues for many voters in the upcoming federal election. But the reality is that many Australian communities are economically dependent on coal. If decisions are made to phase out coal, what happens to these communities and are we willing to support them? Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince. In this rear vision, we go to the rural region of Germany which for over a hundred years was one of the leading coal-producing regions in Europe and where its hundreds of mines employed most of the region's male workforce. Germany is doing what Australia says it can't. It's letting go of coal. Europe's biggest economy has closed its black coal mines without sacking a single worker. Today, there are no coal mines in the Ruhr. The region has been transformed from one of the most highly polluted and industrialised regions in Europe to a region known for its parks and green spaces, its museums and art, and for being a hub for green energy and innovation. This transformation occurred without mass unemployment or social dislocation. So how did it happen and what can we learn? The Ruhr area is in the very west of Germany, close to the Dutch and Belgian borders. It is an area comprising 53 autonomous communities, cities, and there are five and a half million people living in the Ruhr area. The main cities of the Ruhr are Duisburg, Essen, Bochum and Dortmund. And they all have between 350 and 550,000 inhabitants. Well, my name is Stefan Berger, and I'm director of the Institute for Social Movements at the Ruhr-Universität Bochum, where I'm also professor of social history. Coal mining in the southern part of the Ruhr began very early and can be traced back to early modern days. But coal mining proper began in the second half of the 19th century, when it became possible to break through the hard stone and start deep mining in the Ruhr. And we can see from the last third of the 19th century, really to the middle of the 20th century, a major expansion of the coal industry. By the beginning of the 20th century, the coal industry in the Ruhr was the lead industry of Imperial Germany. And it certainly was the motor behind Germany's rapid industrialization, which also happened from the last third of the 19th century onwards. Coal from the Ruhr Valley near the Dutch border helped build the steel that armed the Third Reich. When Germany lost the war and was split into a capitalist West and a Soviet-run East, this coal helped remake West Germany into an economic powerhouse. 
the Ruhr was pretty much flattened in the Second World War. The reason behind that is, of course, to hurt the coal and the steel industries, which were the major industries in the region. And after 1945, we had strong recovery program. Both after the First and after the Second World War, the Ruhr area was behind the economic recovery of Germany, so played a major economic role for the country throughout the entire 19th and 20th century until it got into crisis in the 1960s. The height of coal production in the Ruhr was during the 1950s, when the coal and steel industries combined employed around 70% of the region's workforce. The Ruhr area was the largest mining area in Germany and was by far larger than all the other mining areas. And it was really significant both in terms of the GDP and also, of course, in terms of jobs. My name is Hannah Brauers and I'm a research associate at the Europa University in Flensburg. In 1957, which was the peak, more than 600,000 people were employed just in coal mining. So then again, you already mentioned the steel industry, so you had connected jobs to that, but also you had other jobs that came from coal mining. So a lot of people were dependent on it. Yes, that's true. The whole economy was based on coal, iron and steel. It was largely a male-dominated set of industries, interconnected industries, and the whole region was basically employed by a small number of very large privately owned and interconnected coal, iron and steel interests. Peter Sheldon, Honorary Professor, School of Management and Governance at the Business School, University of New South Wales, Sydney. 70% of the workforce was coal plus iron and steel and the coal mining proportion of the total workforce was about 30%. I think the thing to say is that when you've got 70% working in those industries, coal and iron and steel, what that essentially meant that was there was almost no or very, very tiny presence of small and medium industries, a very tiny presence of family-owned industries, and the in this huge region, I think something like five over 5 million people, there was not one university. So it was really, as a region, heavily blue-collar, very grimy, very smoky, very polluted, and as a series of communities deeply embedded in the workforces and the factories and mines of the area. It was heavily industrialised, heavily polluted, A lot of the Ruhr area before industrialization was very rural, so that what emerged were industrial villages, and everything in those towns was geared towards the key industries, towards mining and towards steel. That includes housing, that includes the entire infrastructure, and we had a lot of pollution, a lot of smoke. You could hang out the washing in the morning, and after two hours, the washing was black again because the air was so heavy with smoke and with dust. In the 1960s, the then Chancellor Willy Brandt declared as one of his aims as Chancellor to turn the sky over the Ruhr blue again. So the image was that it was never blue. It was always gray. It was dominated by smoke, by dust. The working conditions were poor. A lot of miners died very early from very mining-specific diseases, especially lung diseases. So the Ruhr had a terrible image in Germany. 
Germany's reliance on coal from the Ruhr shifted in the 1960s as imported coal became much cheaper. Well, the mining of coal saw several crises already earlier. So when the coal crisis in 1959 hit the country, many people thought it was another cyclical crisis and that it would go away again. And it took about 10 years to realize that this crisis was a terminal one. And it basically had a lot to do with the world market for coal, because coal could be produced much cheaper and imported for the coal-fired power stations so that the domestic coal was basically not competitive any longer in terms of world market prices. Initially, there was a significant downsizing of the industry. So we see already in the early 1960s, a lot of the coal mines, and there were hundreds of coal mines in the Ruhr, shutting down. But we also see a lot of resistance, in particular from the owners of the mines, towards some form of structural change in the Ruhr. So we already see in the 1960s that other companies wanted to come into the Ruhr, I'll just give you one example of the car company Opel, which wanted to build a plant in Bochum on the site of a former coal mine. And a lot of the coal owners were opposed to that because they feared that the car company would take away the workforce from the mines. There was the fear that mining would be a lot more unattractive in comparison to other jobs. So the coal owners were actually opposed in the 1960s, the structural change, arguing that the crisis was only cyclical and that if the market recovered, then they would need the labor force that was available in the Ruhr again for the mines. And therefore, they opposed policies to put new industries into the Ruhr area. So what happens when they start to realise that this isn't a cyclical decline, but rather the end of coal mining? Well, the crisis got deeper and deeper. More and more mines had to shut, and that caused a problem in terms of unemployment and social hardship. So around about the mid-1960s, there were concerted efforts from the three big partners that make up the type of corporatism that came to characterize West Germany after 1945, and that is often referred to in the English language as Rhinish capitalism, that is a corporatist system in which employers, trade unions, and the state cooperate in order to find solutions to industries that have run into crisis. And in this case, it was in particular the mining union that came up with plans to unite all the mines into one big company and to support that company with state subsidies so that it could produce coal and that the difference between the production costs and the sale of coal on the world market would be made up by state subsidies. This is the corporate headquarters of the rural coal giant RAG. Its main job now is rehabilitating the closed mines. The idea behind this is that you would slow down the crisis and that you could move to a reduction of mining that would not lead to social hardship for the miners. The coal owners, in a way, were glad to get rid of their businesses. They were compensated. So you had the creation in 1969 of uh, one big major coal company, the Ruhrkohle AG, and the RAG, the Ruhrkohle AG, then managed the transition out of coal, well, until 2018, when the last coal mine 
in the Ruhr closed. In this program, we're looking at how the Ruhr region of Germany, once one of the key coal regions in Europe, was able to close its mines without leading to mass unemployment and social dislocation. As it became clear that mining was dying in the Ruhr, the governments, the unions and the new mining giant, the RAG, had to work out what to do with the hundreds and thousands of coal workers as the pits began to close. And the key to this was planning. Many of those workers still get together in the Ruhr Coal Choir, but their days underground are over. Older miners were given early retirement, younger ones were helped to find new jobs. In this choir, that ranges from a research scientist to a budding trade union delegate. So part of the secret about how this worked was that if you think about you've got this huge, enormous coal mining workforce, some people who have recently come into the industry, they're young people, mainly men, and then you've got a whole range of people up to near retirement age. One of the first things that people did was to plan between the companies, the industry associations, the union and locals and state government, an orderly closed down process. They decided which mines would go first and which mines would go last and then have a sequence with stage timings of this. So everybody knew, everyone agreed and everybody knew which mines and when. When they started closing the first mines, they offered very, very generous retirement packages for the oldest coal miners. And that allowed them to make the shift into retirement without losing financial security for their retirement. Then there was a next stratum by age. There were a number of things that were offered to those workers. One was to move to existing mines that would continue to operate at least for the near future so that the mines that were going to continue for some time Instead of them replacing their own retired coal miners, they transferred these workers across. But that was organised. They were talking across the mines and across the companies to identify where the next gaps would come. Then in closing each mine, there was a huge amount of work involved in rehabilitating the mine site and the surrounding area. So part of the solution, but also part of the future of the Ruhr, was to turn it from a dismally polluted, grimy industrial area into one that became a hub 50 years later for ecotourism. So one of the things they did was these groups of workers could move from coal mining to mine site rehabilitation and some of that work takes 10 years. So that gave them security of employment until they were ready to retire. Finally, and particularly for the younger groups of workers, they offered substantial training packages to move them into other industries or into parts of the existing industry that themselves were restructuring towards new products. And how quickly did that transformation take place? So, as I said, in 1957, 473,000 workers were employed in the coal mining industry in the Ruhr. In 1960, that number had fallen to 390,000. By 1980, to 140,000. 
and by 1994, some 77,000. By 2001, that is 44 or so years after 1957, coal mining employment had shrunk to 39,000. So by that stage, it was less than 10% of the workforce of 40-odd years previously. One thing that's really important to have in mind, I think, is this transition of structural policies. When it started, those were really top-down policies by the national government in Germany. And then over time, what happened, it became much more regionalized. We found four different categories of policies that were being implemented. The first one was just general economic diversification and reorientation. So trying to implement something new that generates revenues and jobs. Then you had the workforce support specifically addressed at people that were previously employed in the coal mining industry and that lost their jobs, both unemployment benefits, but increasingly it was more focused on retraining, on trying to support them with institutions that help them to find new jobs in other industries. Then the third area was just general social well-being and quality of life. This is really important because it often is forgotten. But what the German government increasingly did, or the different government levels, was to focus on quality of life. Meaning, for example, taking care of the air pollution, of polluted rivers, of creating parks, of creating museums, etc. So just generally making regions more attractive to live in. And then the fourth area that is related to this is environmental remediation and protection. So this is more focused on the actual mine pits that need to be closed down of the water management that follows this so that the mines are being taken care of as well. From the mid-50s to early 80s, it was largely very top-down. The government chose the priority of projects, where to invest, etc. And so a lot of that was major infrastructure spending and infrastructure spending involved higher levels of employment and establishing universities and technical schools and technical colleges. So the first university in the Ruhr was Dortmund Technical University, was established only in 1962, and it then developed a whole series of initiatives later, technology park activities, incubating startups, etc. But essentially the aim was to shift coal miners gradually out of coal mining into doing a series of different types of work. And then from the early 80s, you start to get more bottom-up. So the federal and state governments start to encourage local governments, NGOs, companies, employer associations and unions and local communities to have a say in prioritising where the money should be spent, what should be done. One of the priorities of local communities was the preservation of the industrial heritage of the Rua. Yeah, that's also a very interesting story because in the beginning, indeed, the policy that was followed was you close a mine, you get rid of the headgear, you get rid of all of the buildings, you clean the grounds, and then ideally some other company would come along and build a brand new building for whatever purpose they might need it. That was basically the policy in the 1960s and into the 1970s. And it slowly began to change because there was a kind of movement, a kind of social movement from below 
that was very active rescuing some of the remnants of the old industries. An iconic event was the saving of the machine hall of one of the mines in Dortmund, Zeche Zollern, already in 1969. And it was an initiative of workers plus artists, plus intellectuals, plus academics who came together to form a movement to save that machine hall, which is a beautiful building. It's an Art Deco building. This was the first industrial building in Germany that was put under protection in 1969. And it started a movement that gained in strength throughout the 1970s and 1980s to preserve some of these iconic sites of the Ruhr. And initially that met with a lot of resistance, especially from the coal owners who were only interested in getting rid of the, the sites as cheaply as possible, but also the state who was still in the 1970s in full modernization mode. So throughout the 70s and 80s, there was a kind of rethinking going on. And ultimately, that social movement convinced the government. And eventually, it also convinced the big mining company, the Ruhrkohle AG, that actually saving some of that heritage, and it turned out to be a lot of that heritage, uh, would be very beneficial for the region, beneficial in terms of giving the region an identity but also economically interesting because what we have seen is that a lot of new companies moving into the area are finding it very attractive to relocate to a site that used to be an industrial site. We also have the saving of one of the most beautiful mines in the Ruhr area in Essen, the Zeche Zollverein, which was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And we have a route of industrial heritage that connects the different heritage sites in the Ruhr you can drive it through with a car and it's about 700 kilometers if you want to do the whole route. We have an incredibly rich industrial heritage landscape, which is reminiscent of the industrial past of the Ruhr. So I think the creation of that industrial heritage landscape gave the Ruhr a kind of inner unity and an anchor point with which many people in the Ruhr now also identify. But what was the cost? to subsidise coal, to consolidate the mining companies, to build the infrastructure and to support the miners who lost their jobs. It was very expensive. The money that has been spent between the 1950s and 2008, around 330 billion euros were being spent. A lot of this money was actually spent on slowing down the decline. Right now, it's also being criticized that so much money was being spent on trying to rescue the companies, on rescuing only the coal mining companies, but also the relationship with the steel industry. And actually using these funds just re-educate and train the employees would have been equivalent to almost 1 million euros per worker. There is criticism that with the same amount of money, the transition could have been handled a lot better and towards having quicker change, but also spending especially more money on just creating new industries or new employment opportunities on investing in the regions themselves and less less on the companies. So in essence, the sort of the actual propping up of the companies and the mining for a longer period of time was more expensive than if they'd just made the decision much earlier on that a transition needed to happen and it had happened more swiftly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think this is one of the big 
lessons that one can learn from the German example, especially right now. I mean, you asked me in the beginning what the reasons for the decline were, and they were economic reasons. But now the reasons why so many countries are thinking about exiting coal is climate change. So we know what's going to happen. And it's kind of the same example like in Germany. They should have known what was coming, that it wasn't just a short crisis, but that it was a structural decline that was coming. But they kind of resisted this thinking for a long time. And this increased the costs and to a certain extent, probably also the suffering of people in those areas. So knowing now that the structural decline of coal is coming and that actually it should have happened already to a large extent is just a big call to plan this transition now, but to plan it now, not only in terms of slowing down, but to put all the efforts in just creating something new, taking care of workers, but especially taking care of communities, not just the people working in the industry, but also being dependent on it because they live in the regions and creating new opportunities so that it's easier to transition away from coal. The last coal mine closed in 2018, which was a major event. And the transitioning process here in the region is seen as a success story. There's also criticism of the transitioning in Germany. There are people who are criticizing the subsidies for the coal industry, arguing that it kept coal alive for longer than was necessary, that it prevented more innovation from the region. And there's also criticism in terms of the sheer size of the subsidy program. The region is also still a problem region in Germany, in particular in the northern parts of the Ruhr. Some of the cities belong to the poorest cities in Germany. So it's not as though the Ruhr region is a region that has no problems at all, but depends on with what you compare it. If you compare the Ruhr region with other German regions, which have been boom regions over recent decades, such as Bavaria or Baden-Württemberg, then it does rather poorly. But if we compare it to other regions of heavy industry in other countries, such as Nord-Pas-de-Calais in France or the coal regions of England, Wales and Scotland in Britain or the Rust Belt of the United States, then I think what has been achieved here in the Ruhr has been rather remarkable because we certainly do not see the kind of social hardship that we see in many of those other areas and regions of heavy industry in the world. And we see a region that, despite a lot of problems, is optimistic about its future and has been rebuilding itself in major ways. In Australia, the discussion now is coal-fired power stations rather than coal mines. We've had a series of announcements over the last few years for the closures of coal-fired power stations, Hazelwood in Victoria and then Liddell, and now we've had Latrobe Valley and Lake Macquarie-based power station closures mooted by their company owners. And I think that's an easy place to start. Coal mining for export is more difficult because those mines are still very, very profitable for the owners and provide well-paid employment for coal miners. I would talk about prioritising a just transition for the workers and the communities of coal-fired power stations. And some companies, in fact, have embraced the Ruhr model, but just for their company. Other companies have done much less. 
I think the answer lies really in getting levels of government to agree that the problem needs confronting, the challenge is there, we can't turn away, and that we have the opportunity to address this at a much, much, much smaller scale than the Germans addressed in the Ruhr. We can learn the lessons of the Ruhr and we can see this as an opportunity to invest in the future rather than just seeing this as a cost that we need to bear. Peter Sheldon, Honorary Professor from the School of Management and Governance at the Business School, University of New South Wales. My other guests, Hannah Browers, Research Associate at the Europa University of Flinsburg, and Stefan Berger, Director of the Institute for Social Movements and Professor of Social History at the Ruhr University in Germany. The sound engineer is Wei Nguyen. I'm Annabel Quince, and this is Rear Vision. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.